Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Isaiah chapter 58. It was a little bit long to print in the bulletin this week, so hopefully you brought a Bible with you or a cell phone that has a Bible app on it, or there are some Bibles in the, in the back on the table there next to the children's materials. So <clears throat> Isaiah 58. Let me pray, and then we'll read the passage. Father, we need your help as we think about your word, as we hear it read and proclaimed. We want to be a people who are responsive to your word, ultimately to your personal word, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to respond to him well by your Holy Spirit, who works in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray as we hear and, um, and meditate on your word, that we would be changed by it, that none of us would leave here unchanged, but that you would work a deeper work in our hearts, um, all of us, no matter who we are, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, 
not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So history shows um, that Christianity grew very rapidly in the first few hundred years. Uh, Rodney Stark is a historian, and he's got a book called The Rise of Christianity. It's a pretty interesting book, and he's got, he details an interesting dynamic that he sees there that, um, in, in the history of the church, is that conversions take place through relational influence. Conversions to Christianity, we, we win people to the faith through relational influence, not primarily through intellectual argumentation. Through relational influence more than through intellectual argumentation, even though later people will often describe their own conversions in terms of doctrinal shifts. Uh, really, the way that these conversions take place is through relational influence, right? Being around Christians uh, who act in a certain way. And um, this relational influence seemed to be the most winning, the most compelling, the most persuasive in uh, at least as is recorded for us in uh, the early church history and the, the, the Roman Empire, when Christians suffered. It was most effective when Christians suffered or shared in the sufferings of others uh, through their compassion. Right? The, the relational influence that seemed to uh, be most persuasive to people converting to Christianity took place when Christians were willing to share the sufferings of people through their compassion. Uh, during there, there were a lot of plagues um, in, uh, in the first couple hundred years of the church. Uh, a lot of plagues, for example, long before modern medicine could even explain uh, diseases, let alone treat them, and you'd often have significant portions of populations dying, you know, up to like a quarter or a third of the population of certain cities um, dying from plagues. And the most tragic aspects of these things, I mean, it's tragic to think that just with a little bit of medicine, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, but probably the most tragic aspects of these plagues was the, the dehumanization of people when uh, the plagues hit. Right? So around 260 AD, there was a, uh, one of these great epidemics. There was a bishop, Dionysius, who wrote how non-Christians, so pagans or heathens, uh, that's the kind of language they used, um, non-Christians, they, they pushed sufferers away. This is what he says. They pushed sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt. So, uh, so people would spend their last days in misery, dying alone, and then they would die un- undignified death, right? Um, and it was common for lawlessness, actually, to prevail as social mores were abandoned uh, in the midst of really the hopelessness, right? Um, in contrast, Dionysius wrote of the Christians, it's a bit of a quote here, um, he said, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, 
attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. That's what he said. The best of our brothers died because they nursed people back to health and caught their, caught their death of it. Um, they were just with people. They loved them. They had compassion on them. They shared their sufferings. They were just with them, right? With the sufferers. And they helped in whatever ways they could, and they, they just suffered with them. The great ones were the ones to lay down their lives for others. And when you hear that kind of compassion for people, that's beautiful, right? It's attractive. It's compelling. Such selfless service, that's what won a lot of people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what won a lot of people to Christianity and converted the Roman Empire. It's, it's things like that. Um, the other day, Tim Seary and I, uh, it was another example, we were, uh, we were talking with a fellow, a Vietnamese fellow, who told us basically the entire story of his, uh, his Vietnamese uh, Assemblies of God church that he's been attending. He said that the founding pastor, years ago, 20 years ago, something like that, um, he had been a colonel in Vietnam. He'd been a colonel in Vietnam, and um, a Vietnamese man who was a colonel there, uh, this fellow... Um, that was talking to us made it clear that if you're a colonel in Vietnam, you've got a lot of power. You've got so much power. You can command such respect. It's like much more than our governor's command here. Um, and when this, this fellow, this colonel, became a Christian and then uh, eventually became a pastor here in the U.S., he used to serve. Right? Instead of demanding service for himself, he would serve others by cleaning the building and scrubbing the toilets things like that, and other Vietnamese people, when they saw this and they learned that this was a colonel before, and now he's scrubbing toilets, and the gospel has taken a man like that, and he's made him a man like this, um, people converted. People converted when they saw that. And, uh, and here was a great man, right, a great man in Vietnam, Vietnam who was made a servant by the gospel, and they said, if the gospel can do that, then the gospel must be true. Right? If the gospel can change a, a person like that, if it could change a group of people like that, then it must be true. It must have real power. Right? Um, so our passage is about how living in response to God, living in response to the gospel, living in response to God's grace and the salvation that we have as a free gift of his grace, it really means our transformation into servants. Of, of justice and mercy. The gospel has real power because it's true to change people who are unjust and unmerciful and make them just and merciful. It has real transformational power. And this transformation, this becoming something new, uh, becoming just and becoming compassionate, it's the only appropriate response that really aligns, that truly aligns with our salvation. And it, it always seems to result... Uh, in the scriptures and throughout church history, it always seems to result in the church's influence growing, the church's relational influence growing for the sake of the gospel. So <clears throat> I'm not going to go through 
the chapter that we read uh, verse by verse, but pretty briefly you can see that that first section in there, the first part of chapter 58 of Isaiah's prophecy, um, you've got people who are deluded about their relationship with God. People who think they're in a good relationship with God, but they really don't know. And um, and God is telling them clearly, no, this is not right. Yeah, um, and so people who are doing, they think they're doing the right things, and so they become confused when they realize God is condemning them. You know, why have we fasted and you haven't heard it? You haven't seen what we've been doing for your sake, right? These religious duties that we've performed. Uh, what's 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 wrong with that? Um, they seem to be operating with a transactional concept of relationship with God. They perform the religious duties, and then God is supposed to take notice and bless them and reward them. Right? Um, they do the right thing, and God keeps up his end of the bargain. They expect God to take notice of their apparent goodness, but, but God says they've actually neglected their true religious duties, their true spiritual duties, Um, because they've continued to contribute to the oppression of other people. That's what he's pointing out. They've allowed oppression to continue. They have failed to relieve the sufferings of others, and that's the real religion that he wants. James 1 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to be with them. So real religion, real life with God and life for God, with and for this God, is to be characterized by care for others in need. That's why we're talking about this, is Ascension's basic cares. That's the point where we are in our series about the things that are most important to us. Real religion is supposed to be characterized by our care for other people our care for other people who are in need, who are marginalized, who are downtrodden, who are oppressed or forsaken. The Bible frequently calls these people the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the stranger, the sojourner, the refugee. So it should be quite obvious to God's people. It should be very obvious to us that this is the appropriate response to our salvation, is to care for people who really need it. It should be obvious to us. And, um, and this is, I mean, it goes, it goes back to the Ten Commandments, obvious. Right? So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you've got the reiteration of the Ten Commandments. And um, the commandment on the Sabbath day in Deuteronomy 5 is given some slightly different reasons for um, why you would keep this commandment than appear in the original Declaration of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So uh, Deuteronomy 5 says that uh, God says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So we're talking about the Sabbath. This is like our religious, spiritual day. This is the Lord's day. This is a big deal. Observe it to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember, this is the reason why he's giving for this, uh, this really it's a, it's a day of mercy. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You were a servant and you were a stranger. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So Israel's deliverance is what this is a reference to. Israel's deliverance from Egyptian oppression. It was the huge central Old Testament salvation that foreshadowed the, the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately. And, um, and it foreshadowed the gospel because Jesus came proclaiming the good news and he likened his hearers to the poor and the captives and the slaves and the blind and the oppressed. That's what he likened his hearers to. Some of them actually were poor and, and broken people and oppressed people. Um, and, but to all of us, he would say, you're poor in spirit. You're a slave to sin. Right? You're a stranger from the commonwealth of Israel. You're a stranger from God himself. You're, you're alienated from God. So everywhere he went, he restored people miraculously. He has the power to do this. He fed them miraculously. He delivered them from demonic oppression by his very words. He restored their sight and their hearing and their ability to walk and their very lives. He restored broken people and, and enslaved people he freed. And all of these miracles were to function as signs. Right? The Gospels point this out. These miracles in and of themselves are great things that these people they had their, their sight restored and they brought this kid back to life and gave him back to his mother, and that's great. In and of itself, it's great, but the Gospels point out that these were all to function as signs, pointing like the, like the Exodus did as God delivered his people Israel out of Egypt miraculously, pointing to the ultimate salvation that we have in Jesus Christ by his grace, salvation from eternal death, salvation from bondage to sin and the rule of the devil, the oppression of the devil himself. God had said to his people, Israel, after delivering them from Egypt, that their worship, this Sabbath day that they were supposed to keep holy, right, that they're supposed to rest and engage in their religious duties, right? Um, but it's their worship. It was to include justice and mercy. They're giving their servants the, the day off too. And they're making sure that the stranger, the refugee who's in their land, he gets to rest too, right? Um, justice and mercy was to characterize their worship, rest for their servants and the strangers in their land. So this, this was an appropriate response, right? This justice and this mercy, this is a response that is commensurate with the kind of salvation that we have. God has been merciful to us, and so we extend mercy to other people. God has freed us, so we free other people from oppression. Right? So in our passage, in Isaiah 58, God reiterates, now don't be confused about the nature of the Sabbath. Sabbath's a big deal. Don't get it wrong. It's not just about moping around and putting on a show of humility. It's um, your worshipful response to me, your religious duties will be characterized by your care for those who are in need. 
that's what the Sabbath should be about. So work against oppression, social justice activities, right? Um, feed the hungry, service. Give shelter to the homeless poor in your own house, he says. Hospitality, very generous hospitality, very difficult hospitality. Clothe the naked, generosity, right? These are the very ways I have treated you on a cosmic scale in Jesus Christ, God says. This is the way I've treated you. This is what my salvation of you looks like. I've worked against your oppression. I've, I've fed you when you're hungry. I've given shelter to you in my own house. I've welcomed you in my house forever. I've clothed you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So the appropriate response to this this grace, this kind of salvation we have in Jesus Christ where he came into the world just like, just like the Christians did during those plagues. He came into the world to care for us in our suffering, to, to take our suffering on himself, to transfer our death onto himself. And, and the right response to that kind of salvation, the response commensurate with this gospel is to show the same compassion and care to other people. Salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ produces merciful people. If you're actually connecting with it, it, uh, it produces merciful people. It's the kind of people who scrub toilets when before that really was beneath their dignity. Right? The gospel produces people who scrub toilets. The gospel produces people who risk their lives to tend the sick during plagues. The gospel produces people who give alms to others uh, so that in their community, people's needs would be met. The people that they know that have needs, and some people that they don't know that have needs. I'm going to give so my little part. Maybe I can help alleviate some of those, those pains and distresses and burdens. The gospel produces people who bring food for local kids who don't have enough, right, like we do with our backpack project. The gospel produces people who give gifts that dignify people who are escaping from slavery, a life of slavery, like we do uh, during the Christmas season with uh, ICS. The gospel produces people who look for ways to serve and to relieve and to welcome the strangers who are in our land, the strangers who surround us in this neighborhood, who don't even speak our language. We look for ways to serve them and relieve them and make them feel welcome. Um, Tim Keller says in a great book, Generous Justice, that there is a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. Direct connection. If you understand your salvation in Christ, uh, there's a direct connection to the way that you care for people who are in need. Um, and that connection, our passage says, when that connection becomes visible, it's beautiful, it's compelling, it's attractive. That's the kind of relational influence that God uses, that he often uses, to grow his church. It says in verse 8, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. This is the visibility of, uh, of the church at work in its care for those who are in need. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. In verse 10, 
Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail for the refreshment of the nations, right? That's what he's talking about. And, and your ancient ruins, all the broken humanity that we're emerging from in Jesus Christ through his salvation as we are becoming more and more like our Savior, these ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So if your worshipful response to the gospel, your, your um, Sabbath here, it is called in Isaiah 58, your worshipful response to the salvation that you've been given freely as a gift through Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, if it's, if it's a response of selfless love and, uh, and compassion and justice and care, then God says, then you shall take delight in the Lord. You're going to know him better. You're going to know what he's really like. And you're going to love him. You're going to see that he's the most beautiful one of all of us. Right? Um, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that heritage, he's talking about the promises that he gave to, uh, to Israel, to the people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises to make them a great nation for the sake of all the nations. God fulfills his promises to his people to make them a blessing to all the nations. He does it through our caring service. And he grows his church through things like that, through our compassion for other people. We read about it in our New Testament reading. John uh, read from Acts 2. It's also in Acts 4, some of these summary passages of the life of the early church. There's some really beautiful things that happen in the early church. Right? There, there is, in some way, a golden age, very briefly, uh, to look at. Just a few verses at a time where it says, um, where it says things like, hey, they got together, they worshiped together, they took care of each other. If somebody had a need, somebody sold something and provided for that need, and then nobody had any need. Right? And um, so they shared their livelihoods with each other, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself grew the church through such influence. Right? That's, that's how he grew the church. So do you care about other people? Some questions for you, right? Do you care about others or do you ask yourself, hey, what's in it for me? Do you make a big deal about Sundays, going to church, doing your Sunday stuff, right? But you really conserve your energy and your resources when it comes to compassion ministries. Is serving the poor something that you put on the back burner because maybe you're, you're really just busy reading good books, good theology, Um, do your conversations with other Christians, other Christians in our church, maybe other churches, do they tend toward theological debate or brainstorming ideas for how to show compassion to people? Brainstorming ideas for justice and mercy. Do your prayers mostly center on your own life, maybe people within kind of immediate relational distance from you, or do you cry out to God 
on behalf of the poor and the widow and the orphan and the refugee, the aliens. Do you, do you teach your kids about social justice? Do you teach them that that's, that's a big part of our response to the gospel, is, is watching out for the, the needs of other people? Do you engage the kids in what we do in things like the Backpack Project? Or you just kind of get it over with and not really involve the kids because, you know, it's just kind of a matter of shopping and giving real quick. Um, we should engage our kids. We should give them the opportunity to, to see and participate in our service and our compassion ministries. When you consider Jesus Christ, when you think about him, when you fix your eyes on him, are you attracted to his absolute commitment to fix what is broken, to fix everything that is broken in the world and in our relationships? Is that part about him attractive to you? Is it compelling and beautiful? Because he is the supremely merciful one, and his mercy has delivered you from a fate worse than death. So with his great mercy in mind, go and take care of others for the sake of the glory of his gospel in the church. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we know that you are beautiful in all of your ways, that your salvation is a holistic one, that not only do we have, uh, in some sense, nebulously, a, a relationship restored with God, but that we're looking ahead to the great restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth where you set everything right and there will no longer be any poverty or oppression or even death. We pray that you would make us a people who long to see glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth in the way that you're at work in us and through us. We pray that you would make us the kind of people who are maybe even called restorers and repairers of the breach. People who, through our interactions uh, with the people around us in our neighborhoods and our communities and uh, maybe even in the world, would be bringing um, your kind of salvation, real mercy and real justice. Would you make us more mindful of the needs of the people who are around us? Would you make us ultimately mindful of Jesus Christ who meets all of our needs? and who, um, who has met all of our needs in a way far beyond the, the way that we can meet the needs of others, would you impress us with the mercy and the grace and the justice of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we would be able to reflect his kind of salvation in the way that we engage with others in our community as we care for them and have compassion with, uh, for them and suffer with them. We pray these things in Christ's name and for the glory of the gospel in the church. Amen.